0: Welcome back to Clear the Air, and thank you for joining us up to this point on our journey to help provide great content in the marketing and advertising space. This is a special episode recapping some of our highlights from our previous episodes with our esteemed guests. We will be taking a break after this show to end Season 1, but rest assured, we'll be back with more thought-provoking content in Season 2. Hope you enjoy the show. This first clip is from a chat that I had with Lindsay Emerson head of product at HBO Max. Here she dives into the learnings from a test with the streaming platform that she wasn't expecting.
1: You talked about um, a lot of the new features and enhancements to the platform to reduce friction with the experience. Um, was there anything you guys either learned through a test or one of your features that, that kind of surprised you, that actually was, was something that you, that through a test you learned that it was beneficial? To the experience that maybe going in just seemed logically maybe didn't seem like it would have an impact.
2: Yes, I mean I can speak to it. uh, Putting my my kids' team hat on uh, for a moment, I think one of the neatest features that we were able to release last year is something pretty simple. And I didn't, I you know candidly didn't realize the the importance of this, and now we see how how successful it's been, but. Um, it's what we call our character row. So this is within the kids profile experience where we surface um, some of our you know key favorite characters that we see. So for younger kids, that might be Elmo from Sesame Street or um, you know other other characters that we've folded in. I think when we when we launched that, we sort of were thinking after researching, of course, and, and testing with. Um, little kids, which is always really fun, by the way. Um, you know, I think we knew that it would be one of those really critical features to help them um, give give little kids the autonomy to drive within the bounds that have been set up by their parents, right? Within that, that safe bound of their profile. Um, but I don't think we realized how much engagement that would drive
0: This next clip is from a chat we had with Patrick Creedon from O'Malley Creedon Productions, an esteemed film director. We dove into his latest project, The Loyola Project, and here he's talking about why it's important to acknowledge blind spots from a creative standpoint. I think that's true for
3: anyone who's, this kind of relates to anyone who's telling stories or who is you know, again, whether you're a filmmaker or you make commercials or you are a writer or you're a whatever, if you're someone who is in the business of telling stories, I think it's really important to to remind yourself what your own perspective is and what your own life experiences are. And if you have certain blind spots, you have to, first of all, understand what they are and acknowledge what your blind spots are and figure out how to make your team better, or how to find the right storytellers to tell a particular story—that's um, that's probably the, the strongest feedback we've gotten. Is that having Lucas te- be the storyteller—it just—it takes the movie to a whole different level, and um, and I'm glad that we didn't we didn't run away from our own blind spots. Frankly, we 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 knew what they were. We
0: understand. This next clip is from Eli Winkler, president at Smith and Noble. And here he dives into why it's so important to invest in upper funnel marketing to create great brand experiences.
1: And tying every single advertising or marketing dollar expense to a sale or, or a KPI related to a sale. And a lot of the conversations we're having right now is how to help leaders of or marketing leaders sell to their leadership that there should be an investment more in the brand and brand storytelling, and trying to create, um, you know, a more upper funnel type of awareness that can have more long-term impacts. And I guess I'm curious. Uh, I, I, I hate to sound like I'm, I'm like giving you an interview question, but you know, at one of your experiences, I'm curious if you ever faced that specific challenge where you had to convince, you know, your leadership to not focus on. You know, direct t- uh, sales ties to expenses, but where there, you know, there was a need for an investment in in the brand and the storytelling aspect of an organization.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, uh, I think it's been a consistent conversation at every organization <laughs> that I've that I've ever been part of, um, and you know, I think that you know, for people like you and I, that I think have grown our careers at the same time that there just has been an increased ability for marketers to be able to track their investment decisions, um, as well as I would say for businesses overall, just at a moment's notice to have more visibility uh, to what's going on in the business from an operational standpoint, marketing hasn't been immune to that. Um, And so, you know, it very quickly you know, becomes a conversation around things that are provable, trackable, um, and the returns associated with them. And I think that it is easy to get lost in the fact that um, people purchase from brands that they inherently have some affinity for, right, that resonate with them um, at a deeper level. Um, or at least those are the brands that I think have some staying power, you know, long term. I think that that brands which are exclusively focused on marketing return on investment, um, uh, you know, can do well for a period of time. And that period of time could, you know, could be a decade or more. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that the the brands that have longevity – Um, And have been able to weather different market cycles, different, you know, slates of competitors, different consumer purchasing behaviors are the ones that ultimately just connect with people. And um, and that means that you have to create experiences for consumers that you have to invest in types of media that enable you to be able to establish that. Connection. I mean, like the reality is, you are not going to be able to establish a meaningful connection to a consumer through a search ad, right? Or even through, you know, I would say um, uh, display channels, right? It's just you've got two seconds to grab someone's attention and you can't have a deeper, meaningful conversation with someone yeah. in that period of time. Um, and so, you know, I think that if the goal of a brand is to exist long-term and where the position that they occupy is one that is differentiated, that can be articulated, you got to invest up and down the funnel. But again, it's it's a balance because you can't be so focused on the long-term that yeah. you're not bringing in the dollars in the short-term to be able to invest. Um, and that's, I think, what is um is the responsibility of marketers these days is to to be able to you know think long term for um, companies to think beyond you know the latest week month or quarter um, but at the same time deliver results
0: um that allow us to do so Now, here was a a fantastic discussion with an old friend of mine from business school, Neil Hoyne of Google. And here he dives into why understanding lifetime value can help an organization make great business decisions. So, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that more startups now
1: are starting to have this thought process and building this into the story. I guess when, you know, noting the repeat purchasers or the repeat subscribers in being a proxy for how valuable they could be in the future. But, um, you know, I remember uh, one example you had in your book that was interesting was um, one organization. Um, it's funny, the, the The main thing that I remember is that the, the average lifetime value was $550. And so <laughs> that one, yeah. they backed into yeah. certain levels of investments, given that assumption of an average lifetime value of 550. But I I thought, you know I'll let you uh, you know no. dive into this in a greater detail but I I remember one of the anecdotes was basically you know were they too early in making that assumption of what an average lifetime value was where it, it appeared yeah. as if only there were some outliers that may have skewed that and therefore they ended up investing too much in their customer base and went out of business i think so if you can expand upon that example that yeah, they have
5: I'm happy to Well, so let's say the interest in customer lifetime value doesn't necessarily line up one-to-one with doing it right. You know, no. we may want lifetime value. Do you <laughs> calculate it? And I, I joke commonly I'm on record. Google doesn't help. You search how to calculate lifetime value first three or four pages of results are wrong. Mm. Google doesn't rank on what's right. It ranks oftentimes what's popular and what's popular are people just making arbitrary assumptions or more importantly, this assumption of an average. And they go through and they say, hey, our average customer it was worth in the case of the story you're talking about, which I'll share with the listeners here. It was just that uh, they made an assumption to say all customers are equal. Now, now we know and I bring things back to our just personal lives, we know that's not the way relationships work, right? Mm-hmm. Like we know that, you know, if, uh, if I asked my wife for an opinion on something and then I go ask my Uber driver for an opinion on something, the solution isn't to average those opinions together. That does not lead to uh, a happy marriage, I would suspect. But it's the same thing with companies, is that oftentimes what companies and startups will do is they'll just average their customer base together. And they'll say, all of our customers, and this was a case of this story, were worth a certain amount, $550, I believe. And they say, all of our customers are worth $550. Now, when you simplify the world down to that perspective, what happens? You'll say, well, what's the average customer acquisition cost we have? oh, $50. And you say, you put the numbers in, you're like, look how much runway we have. We can just acquire and snap up all these customers. But when you break down the distribution of those $550 customers, that at what the average lost is that a large portion of your customers will be worth significantly less. And a small portion of customers will be worth dramatically more. If you just go out and cast a net, assuming everybody's going to be worth that amount, likely you'll go to the cheap customer acquisition offers where those customers will not be as great. And now in that case, that's what that business did was that they sat with their investors. They said, look how much our average customers are worth, which I think investors in private equity firms still make the mistake of doing by trusting a single average, not the distribution of customers. And they just like, Oh, well, we have so much runway. We can spend up to $500 more acquiring customers. And then they just go out and they spend. And by the time they realize their mistake, Uh, It's too late because they overspent on all these cheap customers who are never going to come back. And in their mind, it was like, look, we can give everybody $50 off because it doesn't matter. They'll come back and spend. And when they look at that distribution, they went from, you know, maybe their top 20% of customers are great to really the top 1% or 2% of the customers they acquired. Saying 98% of the customers you just spent all this money on will never come back and will never do anything.
0: Now we hear from Brittany Driscoll, co-founder and CEO of Squeeze, one of the latest hot and trendy massage franchises in the business. But prior to that, she actually led marketing at Drybar. And here she dives into what Drybar did. What was their secret sauce to put in market great customer experiences?
6: So Drybar had just launched and they were a couple years in. I really resonated so much with everything about the brand. you know, they they had thought of so many little things like dry bar, especially for the guys out there, but maybe some women, too, who haven't experienced it. Like it's literally set up like a bar. So, you know, when you go get your hair done in a traditional salon, you're sitting there with a wet mop looking in a mirror like, you know, you're worse. There's just so much about the experience that needed or or you know, had the opportunity for disruption. And Driver just did it so right. It's like you sit at a bar, you serve champagne, you watch fun movies, you know, all the like even their napkins that they serve champagne on has cute little sayings on it. There's there was just so much out of that I was like, wow, this company is onto something. And the reason that I think they were onto something is is because of the fact, and we used to say this, is they weren't selling blowouts. You know, we always used to say that we were selling the happiness and confidence that came with a blowout. And when you look good, you feel good. And when you feel good, you can take on the world. And so, you know, I think it's like when there's a bigger mission and and an emotional, you know, reason or an emotional pull and draw and benefit that a brand can bring to a person on a daily basis like that's the ticket that's that's the magic you know and there's this great seth godin quote that says people don't buy products and services people buy stories relations and magic and i think that that's what drybar had was like a great story you know ali was a stay-at-home mom she was a stylist she Opened this one little shop on San Vicente in Brentwood and thought it would be her nice little life. And then all of a sudden, you know, Drybar became what it was. So it was like yeah. there was that piece of it that you're like rooting for the American dream. And then just the experience was so brilliant. Um, so, yeah, you know, that was a ride of a lifetime. I was with Drybar from 2013 to 2017, helped build the company from 30 million to over 100 million. I got to build out an amazing team and onboard a ton of franchisees. Um, and also uh, built the product line into all the retailers that it exists today.
0: And last but not least, we had a great discussion with Sarah N. Croft and Gabby Maestra from Tremor Video and talked about a variety of the innovations with media transacting. But here they dive into speculation around what's going to happen with Netflix, given all the changes with the company and the declining subscribers that they are seeing. I'm
1: sure you guys are following the news and seeing what's going on with, with Netflix and their, their, their massive uh, stock decrease. Um, you know, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think they're going to have advertising at some point and have like a paid advertising spot? Uh, just, just curious to get your, you know, your all thoughts on that. Yeah.
7: I know Gabby has some thoughts, but I can kick it off. I mean, I absolutely, I think, you know, they're kind of, of, of course, they're going to go ad supported. I know they've been holding off for a really long time, but I have to imagine when you have, you know, I was just at the Think LA Entertainment Breakfast and Joe Early was, um, the president of Hulu was on stage and he was talking about the multi-subscription model and how they, you know, do these great bundle um, subscriptions and, right, uh, I'm willing to pay to skip advertising, mm-hmm. right, because I want my content right when I want it. Um, so I think, you know, Netflix is leaning, or hopefully leaning, towards that. And you know, I already pay for Netflix. Why not pay a couple more dollars to be able to skip the ads? So, I think the consol cons- consolidation consolidation is happening, and I think that's just kind of the way the market's moving. But I know Gabby had some thoughts on like IPs and
8: yeah. So tri- I so yeah. you know I can't help it. I started in in TV um, when people were freaking out about. Uh, streamers and new fronts and. You know, not understanding what views were and how I could match that to my Nielsen TV ratings and things like that. So kind of being able to see it happen almost, you know, live over the last 10 years has been really exciting. I think not just consolidation of platforms, but consolidation of IP. Um, I think the easiest example for folks to pick up is like, you know, Disney throughout the last 10 years has had a transformative um uh you know change in market. Um, you know, if you notice, you know, they slowly started acquiring master IP libraries from Marvel uh to Lucasfilm. And they weren't the first uh subscription platform. They were probably close to last in terms of like kind of the big name brands that hold libraries. Did that matter? Probably not because they you know, they have um, all those big ticket libraries. And I think we're going to continue to see that um, as things continue. You know, we kind of saw it with um, the Paramounts, Viacom, CBS. Um, um, I think with Am- Pluto did Amazon buy
1: MGM I think was there it? you go yep. yeah, yeah exactly
8: yeah, M- yeah. M- so you're M- gonna I think that's where we're gonna continue to see consolidation beyond platforms um, uh, in terms of Netflix going ad supported um, I mean that just gives me more data like to decision on in terms of creative versioning um, you know historically Netflix has always been you know kept their numbers very close um, yeah. at heart so the fact that you know, even if it's, uh, uh, you know, going through clean room, clean rooms to access that data, um, I I think it's definitely going to open up additional um, opportunities um, for advertisers, marketers, um, and all of our different clients. Um, so I'm excited. Yeah, I mean, that's being funny. able to get off of that, that's going to be
7: so crucial. I mean... We have different ways that we're able to do that right now through a company um, we're working with to be able to target anyone viewing Netflix shows based on a device that's actually in the household. So as Gabby mentioned, right, Netflix has historically been very closed off. So you can't access the normal ACR methodology of you know, automatic content recognition once TVs actually um, go into, right, if someone actually connects to the Netflix app, you're actually not able to follow them through. They were been very strict, but we actually work with a company who has a device in the household that is able to understand that it's a Netflix show. So that's really recent and we're really excited about it, But I mean, it, once commercials start running in there, then um, yep, it's all yep. fair game and TV retargeting is going to be catapulted, being able to target people who are watching um, the most you know, recent season of The Crown, et cetera. It's going to be really exciting and great way to be able to kind of tie in all the uh, streaming platforms together and reach those original viewers.
4: On behalf of all of us here on the RPA Podcast crew, thank you so much again for listening to the recap of Season 1 of Clear the Air with RPA. We hope you enjoyed the honest and informative conversations with our esteemed guests. We'll be taking a bit of a pause with episodes over the next month or so, but rest assured we'll be back with new and exciting content in our next season. As always, please reach out to us with feedback or show ideas at rpa-pod at rpa.com. That's rpa-pod at rpa.com. Be well, and we'll see you next season.